Hi everyone, this is Kina Wolfenstein and you're listening to the Complex Trauma Recovery Podcast. This series of episodes, I'm interviewing different therapists about experiential and bottom-up therapy, trying to help people feel more informed um, about different kinds of therapy and more empowered to find really awesome trauma-informed care. So I'm really excited about today's guest. I'm interviewing Kendall. A lot of you probably follow her on TikTok. She's the Ennui Therapist, E-N-N-U-I underscore therapist on TikTok. I've always loved her content, learned so much about her content. So I'm super excited to interview her today. And this is her bio. Kendall is a mental health therapist who specializes in complex trauma and dissociative disorders. She graduated from Naropa University with a degree in transpersonal counseling psychology. She utilizes a variety of therapeutic approaches, including EMDR, brain spotting, comprehensive resource model, IFS, coherence therapy, and inner child slash inner teen work. Kendall currently owns her own private practice, Mindful Therapy, in Salt Lake City, Utah, which offers a variety of bottom-up therapy approaches. She is also the owner of Lithesome, which offers mental health resources for individuals and therapists, including online masterclasses, trainings, consultations, and mental health-related merchandise. So you guys are going to love this interview, but before we jump in, just a couple announcements. I do have um, an upcoming workshop, May 7th, Intro to Experiential Therapy, um, which is designed for therapists that want to learn some kind of simple introductory techniques to practice from more of a bottom-up perspective. I also have a workshop available called Healing Modalities for the Painfully Self-Aware, more so for clients or for anybody wanting to learn about bottom-up healing and what it looks like. All of the resources that I have available are in my link tree, which is posted below in the podcast description. All right, enjoy the episode, guys. Thank you so much for being here, Kendall. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Yeah, I've been excited to talk to you too. So I love all of your content on TikTok and I'm always like seeing your videos and I'm like, I want to ask her about that and about that. (laughs) So (laughs) it's like hard to decide where to start. Um, So you also specialize in complex trauma, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So um, what, let's see, what are kind of the approaches that you tend to focus on the most with complex trauma? Like, I know we're kind of going to be weaving in and out of a few different things, but what are like those foundational pieces for treating complex trauma in your experience? What do you mean by that? Like, what are the, the modalities, the approaches, like what, um, cause you were saying earlier that you kind of use like an eclectic blend of things. Mm. So what are like those different ingredients that you kind of blend together with clients? Yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Most of them are like a combination of a lot of just bottom up approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, so I use a lot of inner child work. I use a lot of, um, sorry, <clears throat> brain spotting, EMDR, um, comprehensive resource model, coherence therapy, IFS. Um, and it becomes a melting pot of like kind of com- combining all of those. Oh, that's such a great list. I love all of those. Um, okay, let's start. I guess we'll just kind of go into a few of those, kind of do a, a deeper dive. 
one at a time. So I would love to start with talking about inner child work because I feel like inner child work is something that has definitely gained more popularity in terms of people like talking about it online. Um, but I also think that it's hard to imagine what that actually looks like in therapy for people that haven't tried it yet. So um, yeah, can you just talk a little bit about what inner child work is and, and what that looks like clinically? Yeah. So when I, when I look at inner child work, it's, it's a type of parts work and, you know, I have all the different kinds of parts work I do. It feels like it just moves to like deeper, deeper layers. Mm -hmm. So I would probably, when I look at inner child work, it's like the top layer of, I'm typically working with an inner child or sometimes an inner teen. Um, and then we're trying to work with what is the adult self. Mm-hmm. And mostly these are like the dominant parts of the um, inner child work is the goal is for the adult self to learn how to reparent the inner child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you get people in touch with their inner child or inner teens? Um, ex experiential therapy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a lot of different ways in which we can. I typically use more of becoming more embodied in the negative core belief. So when I'm working with an inner child, I'm usually looking for a lot of the negative core beliefs that connected with the inner child. So if somebody comes in and they're like, you know, they got slighted by their friends over the weekend and mm -hmm. they saw all these pictures online, um, we might explore kind of like what core belief starts to come up for them when they, you know, when that trigger happens might mm -hmm. be like, I don't matter or I don't belong. And from that entry point, we usually kind of look at like, how old is this? You know, and that comes, goes into like feeling it in your body, the emotions that come up, how familiar is that experience? Mm -hmm. And then we just track of how old it is. Mm -hmm. And typically um, core negative core beliefs, mm, typically form in pretty early childhood. Yeah. Yeah. So that's usually the entry point that I find the easiest to start working with the inner child of identifying the inner child. Yeah. Kind of through the core beliefs that come mm -hmm. up during like times of emotional activation. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. And I love those questions too. Of like, how old does this feel? How familiar is this? I like to, I use those a lot as well. Um, and then once you have when someone has kind of identified their inner child or teen or gotten in touch with it, what does the, um, uh, like building the adult self look like, or what does it look like to, to kind of facilitate that reparenting? Yeah. I use a lot of different experiential techniques. One of my favorite is kind of a, a bit of a time machine, um, <laughs> meditation or a time machine exercise where as we start to really get to the, like, core root of when the negative core belief started to form it's leading questions of like if we could go back what would we want to do to you know help this child not feel like they don't matter mm -hmm. and just prompts of like and sometimes they're like well I don't know so we'll pull it outside of them and like okay well if there was a kid that you knew right now that was feeling like they don't matter what would you want to do for them mm -hmm. right so we're kind of trying to facilitate that more um nurturing adult perspective of how we would want to try to help and this usually is the entry point of um 
identifying the unmet needs of the inner child, Mm -hmm. which is what we're trying to facilitate the adult self internally to be able to start giving them whatever those kind of core attachment wounds and unmet needs were. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that typically is like kind of looking at what we could have done or would have wanted to do for this like wounded self with this core belief. Yeah. Have you ever found um, for people with complex trauma that it can be hard to get in touch with that adult energy? Like they're, they can be really like blended, I guess, with that like wounded inner child energy and kind of have some difficulty finding that like adult resource within them. Um, yeah, sometimes. Um, and this is when like IFS comes in handy because um, some of the IFS work is learning the therapist kind of being a mentor of teaching how that what that would look like to help mm-hmm. facilitate that, um, you know, that growth of the self. Um, so sometimes as a therapist, I might have to kind of go, well, you know, if I if you little you was in front of me, this is what I would have done to help them not to feel like they matter. Mm. So I do a little help helping facilitate that, like nurturing awareness, because if we look at it from attachment place, you know, the way we learn how to do this is typically from how our attachments help us learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I kind of am facilitating a little bit of that um, kind of attachment as kind of the co-parent yeah like modeling what that kind of security looks like yeah and then we might explore like if like maybe I would have wanted to um like given more physical soothing Mm -hmm. inner child and then I might check in with them like do you think that that would have been helpful so then they can kind of go well no or they can say like yeah that Mm -hmm. would whatever and then we can explore what that would look like in present day to give that soothing to them yeah yeah I love those time machine exercises like the (laughs) the going back to nurture or I also have really enjoyed um just going back to witness because I feel like so often in complex trauma, people experience just so much like invalidation or just, you know, feeling very alone and unseen. Um, and so sometimes I'll do exercises where we just go back in time and just kind of like witness what's happening and just let the inner child or the inner teen know, like, I see you and I see what you're going through. Yeah, um, I, and I, I understand. think that's a really important, like first unmet need mm-hmm. just to be validated. And that's like, sometimes when, um, people want to insert like positive core beliefs too quickly. Yes. Before the witnessing happens. It's Mm -hmm. like, no, you got to slow that down. Okay. I love that you brought that up because that's something I think about all the time is when we're working on, you know, moving from like negative core beliefs to positive core beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like some therapy tries to rush that process um, or people feel pressure, you know, to like rush that process. So yeah. What, what does that look like for you? Like, how do you know when it's time to start shifting a core belief versus like how, you know, what are you done with just kind of like the witnessing and the feeling into it? Well, that's, that's a lot of like their uh, client guiding me, letting me know, like typically when we're exploring the negative core belief, and doing a little bit more witnessing and validating, I actually will instruct them to to slow down mm-hmm. because their initial instinct is, what would you want to say to this kid who feel, felt like they didn't matter is, 
I would want to tell them they do matter. Right. Right. And and I'll kind of check in. Does that feel true to this part of you when you say that? Mm-hmm. And and typically it's like, no, not at all. And I'm yeah. like, okay, so slow that down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're not there yet if it doesn't right. feel true. Mm-hmm. And it really does model. I, I don't know if I have mentioned much of this, but when I first started doing um, therapy, I was majority doing it with children. Oh, interesting. Um, and so that's what I noticed with children when they would come in with like this kind of really negative, um, belief that they were kind of showing me if I, as a therapist, tried to kind of be like, I know, like, you don't, you matter, like you matter to Mm me. Um, they would give me like a side eye, like ladies don't even know me. Right. Right. (laughs) And I realized from working with actual children, it's like, that's a slow trust building process. Mm-hmm. to be able to kind of maybe reframe that of like, I know you don't feel like you matter, but I just want you to know you matter to me. Yes. And if the enough trust is established, they'll kind of give me a look. They'll give me like the subtle cue of like, okay, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like, like I not, can receive that now. Right. They're not going to yeah. be direct of like, you know, in that way, you have to track them and kind of feel how, it, what that looks like. And I think that is similar to when I'm working with adult clients I'm kind of trusting and assessing like how much trust building is going on internally mm-hmm. um, to be able to like even introduce the idea that maybe this core belief isn't true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. I feel like that. Does it feel true is probably one of the questions that I ask most <laughs> with, with clients. <laughs> very coherent um, therapy. <laughs> yes. Very coherent therapy. Like what feels true here? Um, and I think I was just talking about this on TikTok the other day, but I think that sometimes therapists or, or newer therapists, I, I'm sure that I have also done this at many times earlier in my work where you want to like correct someone's shame or you want mm-hmm. to like fix it in that moment. Cause you know, you see someone that you care about and they're in all this shame and in all these negative core beliefs and the instinct is to want to be like, no, 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 you're amazing. You're so lovable. You're so worthy. Rescue, rescue. Yeah. 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 Rescue, <laughs> rescue, fix, fix, fix. And it's just like so ineffective. Right. And oftentimes could even like maybe shut that person down a little bit or make them feel like, oh, okay, well, that doesn't change how I feel. Like I'm still over here with my core beliefs. So what does it look like to, to not do that? Right. What does it look like to be with someone in those negative core beliefs without trying to fix or rescue? Yeah. Is that a question? Yeah. That's a question. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's what, for me, what it's like is, um, I, I call it this because this is what I would do with the kids that I worked with is like, to build trust, first and foremost, like you have to, can I swear a little? Oh yeah, you can swear. Okay. Um, you have to sit in the shit. Yeah. <laughs> somebody. And you have to learn how to be regulated in sitting with the shit. Because if you're, if, if a, like if a child is in my therapy office and they're feeling like they don't matter, they're pretty dysregulated with that belief. Yeah. And if I meet them with dysregulation, we're both just like, there's, there's like, a lot of misattunement happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so learning how to sit in the shit of being regulated in somebody's like emotions that can be uncomfortable, like shame and despair um, can actually be quite a healing experience for people. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's first and foremost is like a lot of my own internal work and my own ways to keep myself regulated 
and not try to swoop in to fix it because often that's because I'm uncomfortable with it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think learning how to sit in the shit has been <laughs> like the most helpful <laughs> learning curve for me as well. And sometimes I feel like it's just, it's hearing the core belief and it's saying like, oh yeah, like let's just be with that and explore that together. Like, what does it feel like, you know, to hold that belief and and where right. did you learn that about yourself? And really just like spend some time there until it's been fully explored. Absolutely. I it's, it can, we, we often want to rush that process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do core beliefs change? How, what, what actually facilitates a shift in core beliefs? Well, I mean, for me, it's, it's incorporating that memory recon- reconsolidation. Woohoo! Memory reconsolidation. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> yeah. It's being able to kind of, um, take that core memory that connects with uh, the negative core belief, right? That schema Mm -hmm. um, and facilitate that memory reconsolidation so that we can like update it and edit it, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So yeah, I think we're kind of, we're leaning into the coherence therapy side of things here. See how this organically just shifts. Yes. And I I mean, that's what I love about the work is like the blend, the blending of all these different things. And I feel like um, when I'm in sessions with people, it's like weaving in and out of like IFS and somatic and coherence. And like, it it feels, they all just work so well together. So I love, I love that. So um, we, I just did an episode about coherence therapy. So if people have been listening, we don't need to kind of spell out like the foundations of how it works, which is good. Um, Can you talk a little bit about like the pro symptom position of coherence therapy and what that looks like with complex trauma? Mm -hmm. What angle to kind of look at that with? Any Um, angle you want. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So the pro symptom is like um, the emotional reality. It's, it's that, the symptom that exists has like a m- deep emotional sense. It's like mm. the person's meaning making. Mm. Um, and so when we're looking at the pro symptom, oh, so we're moving, hmm, rephrase that for me. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll, I'll break it down into yeah. smaller questions. So um, what does it mean to be like pro symptom in sessions with clients? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So to be pro symptom in in sessions means that we're actually kind of looking at the symptom from like, how has this benefited the, the system or a part versus like, how do we fix it and correct it? Mm -hmm. Um, Because most of our defenses, most of our kind of ways in which we protect ourselves has come from a place of like there was a purpose for it yeah and the pro symptom is is kind of looking at it from that lens of how did how has this served you how has this helped you Mm -hmm. assuming that so if someone comes into session and they're like I have really bad social anxiety you're going to be like wondering um how, how did this person learn that social anxiety is protective in some way? Or what is like the function of the social anxiety instead of just like, here's some tools for how to not be socially anxious anymore. Right. Yeah, exactly. Or the symptoms of that social anxiety you can look at too, right? Like how is that 
how has that helped or how has that pattern been helpful? The symptoms of the social anxiety, like for example, like hypervigilance or being um, super focused on other people's opinions or things like that. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you said emotional reality um, earlier. I haven't used quite that language for it before, but it's, it's kind of like, yeah, there's the, there's like the kind of objective facts, like logical reality, but then we all have these inner worlds of our emotional realities, which Mm -hmm. are like these networks of all of our different implicit learnings and like the things, the, the, the meaning making, um, So since this is like a a theme with a lot of the people that listen to this podcast, have you worked with people that are very much like kind of the intellectualizers um, or, I mean, I think a lot of people with complex trauma kind of get cut off from those emotional inner worlds, right? Like the emotional inner worlds are there, you know, but there's been not really the space to like actually get in touch with those things or explore those things. And um, if you're working with someone that is kind of like cut off from their emotional inner world, uh, what does it look like to, to help them? I, I feel like the answer is just going to be experiential therapy, but <laughs> more specifically, what is kind of the, what is the process of helping someone get in touch with their emotional reality if they've been kind of cut off? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. So like, um, when I'm looking at this, um, with the, the idea that there might be a barrier there. Mm-hmm. Part of what I kind of look at it from the lens of is a right brain, left brain disconnect. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done a lot of like reading around how that happens. Um, so what that indicates to me is that the left brain really had to take on a lot more to make sense of these emotional experiences, mm-hmm. but it got caught up, caught, caught, um, con- disconnected from the right brain so it doesn't really have the full picture it's like if you read the footnotes of a book versus reading the full rich book Mm, I love that that's what um the right brain gives us the full richness Mm -hmm. of of the information where the left brain is like a cliff note Mm -hmm. and so people often with complex PTSD had to um, disconnect and separate from that right brain experience because there was no guidance in attachment of how to make sense of their emotions, how to regulate their emotions, how to make sense of why this situation brought up these emotions. Mm -hmm. They're kind of left often on their own to figure that out or they're kind of manipulated into a, a negative way of looking at what, what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, when I'm looking at somebody who's very like frontal cortex processing, mm-hmm. you know, very intellectualizing, just gives me an, a, a compassionate sign of like, oh, this person really had to live in that part of their brain a lot more. Yeah. Right. And so it's trying to help bridge that gap of that right brain, left brain disconnect. And sometimes it very much at the very beginning is me reflecting the emotions, Mm -hmm. just like a parent would do with a kid of like helping you make sense, helping you identify your emotions, helping you um, create context for this experience. Mm -hmm. Kind of Um, almost providing that like reparative mirroring that could be missing in childhood development. Right. And then, um, as you know, with then as that kind of is getting a little bit more 
built, then we want to facilitate experiential therapy so that they can start to self-embody that more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like it's just a slow process. You know, if, if someone has been kind of cut off from their emotional brain, like it's just like dipping your toes into the experience and kind of titrating the experiential stuff. So it doesn't feel like too much too fast. Yeah, exactly. Cause all these defenses and, and what this disconnect was there for a purpose, right? There's a pro symptom to this. Right. Right. Um, and so to try and get someone in there too quickly can actually be quite dysregulating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was actually another question that I was going to ask, which is about, um, what I, I don't like the word resistance. I feel like it has this very like patho- pathological connotation to it. Um, but like blocks barriers, you know, when, when there is something in, in session that maybe would be labeled as resistance, um, what is, what is like the kind of bottom up and trauma informed way to work with that. And it sounds like you're saying you, you work with that block or that barrier also from the pro symptom position, right? Correct. Yeah. Like we're, we're trying honoring for me, it's honoring like how this system put into place, like it's way to be able to continue to move on and without trying not to pull out the rug from underneath that without being able to replace it with something, another thing, or, um, really reprocess an update that we no longer need that. Right. Right. Yeah. I feel like that's why some therapy that doesn't do that can be so re-traumatizing for people mm-hmm. with complex trauma. Cause it's like kind of trying to take away these different protective defenses before anything else has been built up or before there's a felt sense of like, okay, I'm ready to let this go. So it can just be like even more like, and, and I totally know, you know, it could be from like a well-intentioned clinician that just isn't um, informed about these practices, but for the client, it can be an experience of like all of my safety just being ripped away. Yeah, exactly. And that can, you know, I think that's part of the why experiential therapy is important because, well, all these modalities have certain ways of helping someone be more embodied um, and also regulated and that being embodied. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the kind of like protective mechanisms um, that we're talking about here and IFS, those would also kind of be looked at in a particular way, right. As kind of the protectors in the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The different kind of manager and firefighters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could you break down what managers and firefighters are? Yeah. So managers are just protections that we put into place that are more day-to-day protections Mm -hmm. The more common ones like our inner perfectionist, um, our inner critic, things that we're like, yeah, this, this is pretty common. I do this quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Those kind of defenses are like usually managers. Okay. And then we've got firefighters when we have some kind of activation, some trigger that the managers can't fully like protect. And it's, it's not as the whole system doesn't really know how to quite work with this. Mm. Um, We move into more of a firefighter protection. Okay. So managers more like day-to-day firefighters, more like when, when shit hits the fan or when things feel like really dysregulated. Right. And that's when we see maybe more addictive behavior happening or um, other ways in which we're trying to regulate that we might not consider to be like, quote unquote, adaptive. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the ones that often are, have, are more taboo. You know, more so taboo defenses, mm-hmm. like self-harm or the, these kinds yeah. of things. And, and the difference, another difference is managers are a little bit more concerned with the long-term outcome mm-hmm. and firefighters are more concerned, like just needing to put out the fire. They're not really thinking about the long-term outcome of the protection. Yeah. More, more reactive kind of mm-hmm. in the moment. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And so, um, I want to kind of pull in the attachment defenses stuff mm. here too. So, um, I talk about attachment a lot on this podcast. I feel like it's, you know, <laughs> oh, pretty much always comes up with complex trauma or is like a central part of complex trauma. Um, it's an interpersonal wound. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. most complex trauma is relational, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it takes place within primary relationships. And so those learnings have so much to do with like, what does it mean to be close to other people? And like, who am I in relation to other people? And um, so I think with attachment, like people generally have an understanding of, okay, so you might come into therapy and you're like, I have identified that I have this anxious attachment pattern or that I have a more like avoidant attachment pattern. And it's kind of, it's someone reflecting on their relationships outside of therapy where they're like, oh, I want the therapist to help me with this. Um, But one thing that I've seen you talk about on TikTok that I find really interesting is more so how attachment defenses actually show up like in therapy or even like Mm -hmm. between the client and the therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, So what does that look like? What does it mean, you know, for an attachment defense to be kind of playing out in the therapy setting? Well, it's, it's typically like you're starting to notice how a client, so when I'm looking at attachment defenses, you know, it's that attachment paradox of my wound comes from where interpersonal. So when we're looking at it from childhood, it's the caregiver child dynamic mm-hmm. or, you know, a, a care or a, a sibling or whatever, like it's really close in the family system. Um, the interpersonal trauma creates this kind of tension of these two safety systems. One safety system is that defense of wanting to like protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. When we're not getting abuse and neglect, we're, we have a system that wants to fight or flight. Right. Right. But then we also have a safety system of attach. Mm. And so we also have this instinct to want to go towards in order to be um, cared for and rescued. So it creates this internal tension when the source of where I need to attach is also causing the neglect and abuse. Mm. Right. So it creates an attachment defense because I have to connect and also disconnect. Yeah. What a horrible like paradox and inner conflict to be experiencing. Right. And this is like, the wisdom and the adapt why it's so adaptable these attachment defenses because they will appear to be in connection while also disconnecting and you can feel that in therapy if you're being able to track that Mm. can you give an example of of what that might look like or how you might tell that that's happening yeah so i think i just recently did one like on the fawn defense Oh, I saw that video. That was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in therapy. And so like when I am working with somebody and I'm noticing a fawn defense, the fawn defense is wanting to attach through being like 
being wanted and and being like worthy Mm -hmm. and so I'll notice there's this you know if a client is over apologizing to me or if a client is sometimes idealizing Mm. the therapeutic relationship a fond response can also be a lot of um relying on the therapist's perspective oh yeah like what do you think I should do what do you think Mm -hmm. is best Mm -hmm. yeah and so they're in in that kind of defense the disconnect is we're shining a light on the therapist and I'm actually feeling disconnected because I don't actually know what's going on with my client. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of self-abandonment that I can start to feel that creates the disconnect of I'm actually not really getting to know my client. My client's starting to get to know a lot about me oh, if I play into it. <laughs> that's interesting. But self-abandonment. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means? Self-abandonment? Mm-hmm. Well, in this case with the fawn defense, all all attachment defense have elements of self-abandonment. Mm-hmm. With the fawn defense, the self-abandonment is um, in order to appear connected, I need to focus on you and your needs and your wants. And I abandon myself in that relationship. Yeah. So there's a lot of loss of self here, of loss of like, my own needs, my own wants, my own boundaries, my own emotional reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as the therapist, if a client is in that kind of fawn and self-abandonment um, defense, you might notice that it feels like the the clients, like you're almost talking about yourself or your opinions or the clients are wanting to like focus more on you as the therapist rather than themselves. Yeah. That's one way in which I can kind of feel that's happening mm-hmm. is that there's there's this um discrepancy in the connection piece which sometimes therapists can kind of it can kind of feel like oh they're really wanting to understand me they're really wanting to like i don't know it's much more subtle than being mm-hmm. really obvious that that the light is being shined on me yeah yeah <laughs> No, I know what you mean for sure. Cause there's, there's some clients that don't have that defense at all, where it feels like, um, the sessions really get to like, it's, it's easier to have the sessions be like really centered and focused around the client. And then there's other, other sessions where you feel a little bit more of like a push pull or kind of like a tug between where the attention is going. Yeah. And, and often with the fawn response, when we start to try to do deeper processing, I'll get to know more about the people in their life than them. It'll what do you mean by like, that? It'll almost feel like um the like an example might be um we start to look at interpersonal conflict with somebody um that maybe stirred up them feeling frustrated and mad. Mhm. Uh, but then throughout the session I'll start to notice that I'm learning more about the person they're having conflict conflict oh. with and their experience yeah then I am my client's experience in yeah. that relationship totally. like I start to get to know everything about the other person and what they've been through and their emotional reality then my right. client right reality. yeah that makes sense it's like that other other focus kind of yes. showing up mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense 
so when we look at the different like nervous system states, cause I feel like there's, it's so cool how all these things overlap, but you're talking about fawn. So with like fight and flight and freeze, would you also frame those as attachment defenses or do, can you also see those showing up in therapy? Absolutely. So I see all fight, flight, fl- freeze, collapse and attach, cry for help all in attachment defenses that show up in therapy. Yeah. I think, um, the attached cry for help was a new one for a lot of people. I actually also had not heard of it until I saw you talking about that on TikTok. So, um, yeah, yeah. I had, I knew fight, flight, freeze, fawn, collapse. I hadn't heard of the cry for help. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you, uh, teach everyone about that? Yeah. Yeah. The attached cry for help response is, a really early, like our earliest adaptive way of surviving and feeling safe, which is that um, crying out out for help to be rescued. Mm -hmm. So if you want to look at it from like a very instinctual, it's the baby who's crying. Yeah. The parents come to tend to it. Right. So it's, it's this needing to be rescued and saved. Mm -hmm. And when, when we've had attached, it's just one of our instincts of like how we can um, have an attachment defense. Yeah. Um, and so clients who often come in with an attached cry for help response are often coming in with a deep feeling of desperation and needing um, mm. and a lot of helplessness. Mm. And that combination of emotions can often be really triggering for the internal system. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of defenses that also connect with the attached cry for help response. Someone might then move into a fight defense or a freeze. Those are pretty common ones that connect with this. Like because being in that attached cry for help state feels mm. so vulnerable or so helpless, then the the kind of more protective defenses of like shutting down might kick in. Right. Like there's a lot of shame that connects um, with being in that desperate, needy, helplessness state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the shame is a huge trigger for the internal system and, you know, internal protection. So often people can move into like the more shame at- attach rage cycle or um, move into a freeze mode mm-hmm. when this is activated. Yeah. 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 I'm glad you brought up shame. Let's talk about shame. Um, Do you find that that is also part of pretty much all complex trauma therapy? Like, is that a really, really common area that you notice in your work? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I can't, you you have to know how, like to be aware of shame when you're doing complex trauma work. Yeah. Yeah. Everything has shame on it. I know that's what I find too. Um, yeah. What, what are some of the ways that, um, that shame commonly shows up in, in doing this kind of trauma therapy? I mean, shame can kind of show up in direct and non-direct ways. Hmm. Um, but when we're looking at, I guess when I'm looking at attachment defenses, you know, the shame can look like a, all of them have an element of something that about my humanity that's not acceptable Mm. and so when I'm working with shame 
I'm often looking at what what is the element that feels not acceptable about my humanity? What what interpersonal like trauma was experienced around my humanity? Mm. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So when you say like direct and non-direct, would direct be when someone can kind of voice clearly, like, I feel ashamed of this, or like, I feel like I'm a bad person or, or those kinds of things. Like it's more fully conscious. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that would be more obvious to me of like, okay, like they're pretty aware of this shame and it's pretty obvious that they, like, I hate the fact that I, that I'm angry. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I can pretty much start to look at like, okay, so there's some shame around the emotion and the emotional experience of anger. Yeah. Like I hate this part of myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where indirect is more of just like, if somebody didn't like that they were angry, but they, there is more of an indirect way of that being expressed. Mm -hmm. Like if I was really in a high fawn response um, high fawn response often is trying to avoid that emotional experience of anger. Yep. I found that too. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, but there's not a lot of awareness that like, I'm just not an angry person. Right. I like that's, I'm just really chill. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit more uh, indirect for me to kind of go, Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What would happen if you start being angry? Right. Right. And that's, that's where a lot of the times you find like either the shame or the deeper fear. It's like, well, if I let myself feel this, then these would be the consequences or that wouldn't be acceptable. Right. Right. Yeah. So do you feel like shame is also a protective defense or like, how do you conceptualize kind of like what shame is or like the, the role of shame? Does You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that shame, it can be very protective. Mm -hmm. No, like it helps us um, know what's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. Right. So like if I got yelled at all the time or um, my fit was physically, mentally um, threatened by being angry, it's really helpful to have that kind of level of activation of shame to, to not like embody that. Mm. Uh, for my own safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of protective, like could be protective in a family system where shame kind of um, creates like guidelines for what, what is and is not acceptable to kind of maintain safety or attachment. Right. So it protects us from re-experiencing that painful disconnect, mm. right? That painful misattunement, mm-hmm. um, whether that is like a mental, physical, whatever, like there's a, there's a misattunement happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also feel like sometimes shame can be, uh, defensive or protective, um, as a way to hold on to those attachments because it's like internalized anger, right? Like it's taking like for someone that doesn't feel safe to be angry or to, um, like their fight instinct is cut off and they're much more in that kind of like fawn fawn Mm -hmm. response shame is a way of like taking all those bad feelings that I have about these things that have happened and like internalizing them all. So they're all about me. And that way I can still like be in attachment with others. Whereas if I were to be angry and I were to like externalize the shame, I might actually um, feel differently about my caregivers or like people in my life. 
Exactly. Yeah, it gives a, it protects us from having a re-experience in the disconnect, but also helps us from like to give us a certain sense of control to yeah. that we may be able to reconnect. Mm. And also to help make sense of the d- disconnect. Yeah. To make sense of it. Because if you're like, oh, it's because I'm bad, you know, that it feels um, safer to just have a reason for it, to have a way to make sense of it. And for that reason to be kind of within my control because it's about me, right? Because if I think that these things have happened because I'm bad, um, that kind of puts it within my field of control. Correct. Yeah. And and I kind of refer to it creates a cycle of hope. Mm. It creates a cycle of hope because if I, if there's a misattunement and a disconnect and it's somehow like due to me, there's a certain sense of control with that. Yeah. And it gives me hope that if I just do this, that I can experience attunement. Yeah. Right. So like if mm-hmm. I have a disconnect with my caregiver, often this is connects with those negative core beliefs too. The the shame does. Yeah. So the the shame kind of manifests in that I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Then if I have different kinds of strategies to prove I am good enough, maybe a stronger inner perfectionist starts to form. Mm-hmm. Um, then this gives me hope that if I just prove my worth, that I'll get that um, attunement again. Right. So creates a, a mm. creates hope and hope is really important in a hopeless situation. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That makes so much sense. And especially I can see why for a child you know, who has a parent that is like emotionally unavailable or disconnected um, or inconsistent, unstable, that having that hope would be like really um, comforting versus uh, if you were to accept, if someone were to accept that um, this is not within their control and it isn't about them, that would create like helplessness or hopelessness. Um, right. Which could be like really debilitating. Right. And then we wouldn't be able to continue to move on. And and that kind of then connects in with like structural dissociation of the mm. importance of like separating that so that we can continue on with daily life. Yeah. So that's the pro symptom of shame. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it makes so much sense. So as we're talking about this, um, I was thinking about grief and rage as being two like intense emotional experiences that are often that we're often like avoiding um, or blocking off with these different defenses because when I'm thinking about shame I feel like there's a connection between shame and grief or shame and and rage where it's like oh if I were to let go of the shame I would feel immense grief over what happened or the things that I missed out on in my childhood or maybe I would feel immense rage towards people that have you know, mistreated or abandoned me. Um, where do you find that grief and rage or do do you find kind of a similar connection? Like, what does that look like for you? I mean, yeah, I do find that connection of like often shame underneath shame is the, the things that I had to abandon in order Mm -hmm. to stay connected. So it's the, it's reclaiming those things. And it's a lot of the times it is like emotion, emotionality, like things about myself that were not okay. Mm. And grief and rage tend to be things that are squashed out of us pretty early. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so being able to reclaim them and own them. So what I'm doing, like, especially when I'm doing inner teen work, um, there's a lot of reclaiming of the rage. Yes. <laughs> um, and I love it. I'm like, yes, finally, finally, we're reclaiming like anger. Finally, we're reclaiming rage. Mm-hmm. Very self-protective um, emotion. Yeah. I love the work of getting back in touch with, with anger too. I love music for that as an experiential thing. I know that you can do do (laughs) music. Yeah. Literally just the other day I was driving and I was like, I want to put on a really angry song and like scream to it in my car. And I did it. And it always feels so good. (laughs) It always feels, I think my inner teen loves it. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So you said the things I had to abandon to feel connected, which I think is such a beautiful way to phrase it. Like it could be, it could be feelings that you have to abandon like grief or rage, or it could be probably a lot of other things too, that we might have to abandon in order to feel connected. Right. I mean, there's, I mean, the list is endless Yeah, of what, you know, interpersonal, uh, misattunement, what what about me created some like what about me was not the other person couldn't regulate with me in mm. so like if my caregiver couldn't regulate with me in my um anger i'm going to get cues that that's not okay mm-hmm. whether it's direct or indirect you know we pretty we start to know yeah 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 people have to abandon their their assertiveness, their kind of individuality, their self-expression. I feel like a lot of the time it's different kinds of self-expression. And so all these different parts of the self get kind of like stifled and suppressed. Absolutely. Yep. So it's like, that's part of like when, when we're doing more bottom up approach in therapy, I think that one of the universal kind of um, arching themes that all of them share is kind of trusting the client to lead yeah of where where this goes so because it could go in so many different directions yeah yeah there's no like formula or protocol for it right and if I therapists with bottom-up approach often have to learn to kind of step aside Mm -hmm. um, and not not always interpret and try to make meaning for the client yeah um, they may then shift that direction of where that goes and it might actually not be totally accurate. Yeah, totally. Which I feel like is such a shift from a lot of the kind of standard training, a kind of like a psychodynamic approach or <laughs> where it's like, it's so much about interpreting and analyzing and kind of like making assumptions. And I loved that about coherence therapy that they're really explicitly like, don't make assumptions, don't interpret, like just you're kind of feeling around with the client in the dark, you know, and, um, seeing where, where things naturally unfold. Cause yeah, if we try to like step in and direct too much and I, that's been a learning curve for me too. Like there's been times where I think I may be predicting where something's going. I'm like, oh, this is where we're going to go, or this is where we're going to go. And maybe I'll try to nudge it in that direction. And uh, I've learned from moments where a client is like, no, that's actually like, there's a totally different thing coming up here, or like a totally different connection. And so, yeah, learning how to really be, um, not directing the process, I think is super important. Yeah, when I got trained in brain spotting, uh, that was a huge emphasis of like, don't interrupt the client's process, use the wait protocol. Why am I, why am I talking? Mm -hmm. Um, 
they kind of have this uh, concept of like the client is the head of the comet and you're the tail. Mm, I like that. And yeah. so I think almost, I mean, all the modalities that I've trained in have that concept of like, step out of the way, let the mm-hmm. client be the expert, follow their lead. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, and I actually like that, but I, it is hard for people especially clinicians that are really used to being more in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, wow. Well, this has been, this has been so helpful. I feel like I could pick your brain for hours. <laughs> um, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you want to talk about or anything, anything else that you feel like is really important working with complex trauma that we haven't mentioned yet? I think I would say overall, when we're looking at a lot of these different bottom up approaches and how they use experiential therapy, um, the way I usually look at the difference between experiential and I guess more of a top down cognitive processing Mm -hmm. is, is that the, the trajectory is outward or inward. Hmm. Um, so what I mean by that is like, if we're looking at more of a cognitive processing, um, let's say we're using the, working with the negative core belief of I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. Cognitive processing will often be processing, um, the trajectory will be outward. Meaning like, okay, so I'm talking about different times in which I didn't feel good enough. You know, in college, I had the stats class that I was not doing well in. Maybe in my teen years, I had a really hypercritical soccer coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, that soccer coach, like he was mean to everyone. Mm-hmm. And that soccer coach also like would often just leave us all alone to try to figure out how to practice. So you can kind of see I am moving further and further away from the um the internal I'm, experience. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm pretty pretty soon I'm like on a tangent. Right. <laughs> and I think um the more cognitive processing can can move us out that way quicker. Mm-hmm. Whereas like experiential therapy is really trying to keep it going, the trajectory going inward. Um, yeah. Right. So I'm not feeling good enough. And I do remember like this hypercritical coach. Okay. Well, like when you imagine that hypocritical coach being next to you right now, like how does your body start to feel? Mm. Right. What emotions come up here? Right. How old are you feeling here? Like we are moving closer and closer and deeper and deeper into that. Not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Really kind of, it's like the being within the experience or talking from inside of the experience instead of about the experience. Yeah. And so I think experiential therapy, like if I summed it up, it's, it's helping the client become more embodied in their experience with reflection. Right. Because the reflection part is really important because that means there's regulation. Right. You're not just experiential therapy is not just like, let's go right back to that, like overwhelming emotional experience and just experience it. It's like, no, you're, you're experiencing it with these kinds of different supports. Now the support of the therapist, the kind of, um, compassionate introspection, like, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Like there has to be a certain level of reflection because if we are just embodying it without the reflection, like 
that's probably not going to allow for memory reconsolidation. It's all just going to be kind of triggering. It's just kind of like bringing up a trigger. Right. And so all of these modalities really do kind of, if I summed it up, help facilitate that becoming more self-embodied with Mm -hmm. reflection. Mm -hmm. And the way they do it can look and feel a little different, but there's always elements of becoming more embodied in that experience and how to do that in a regulated way. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Um, And then this is just something that people ask me a lot. So I like to hear different therapist takes on it. Um, How, how long should uh, people with complex trauma anticipate spending doing this processing? Like people will ask me like, is it months? Is it years? And I mean, I think obviously it depends and there's variation, but what have you, what have you found? Is it like widely variable or is there kind of like an average timeline for doing this kind of deep trauma work? (laughs) Of course you would ask that. (laughs) Um, You know, I, here's something that I kind of think of when I, when you ask that is like, it also depends for me, like what the goal of the client is. Yeah. Because like, they might not, like, it depends on like where they want to go with this. I could go as deep as I, you know, I could keep going deeper. (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) So Part of that is a collaborative experience of like, what is the goal here? Mm-hmm. What does the you know client want to like work on? And that'll give me a better idea of what that time frame looks like. But if somebody is like really wanting to get into that real deep memory reconsolidation, we're really working on ref- re- um, the negative core beliefs. Yeah. Um. It just depends. I often look at it from the structural dissociate dissociation perspective too, of like if it's primary, secondary, or tertiary. Because mm-hmm. each one of those just have different complex layers of self-protection. Yeah. That it's gonna just take longer to <clears throat> untangle. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, if if tertiary for me, which is more of like OSDD, oh yeah, OSDD and DID, we're we're looking at like, you know, five plus years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I heard from a previous guest with kind of dissociation specialty as well. Yeah, and then like complex PTSD, it, it can look like up to three, three plus years. And then mm-hmm. we're looking at primary, um, that that really just depends on what trauma it is if it's a single trauma um or if there's just not as much uh internal protections put into place yeah I feel like it can also vary based on the level of external supports that a client has in their environment too like if there's a lot of safety and connection in their present day life I feel like that makes it quicker and easier to like integrate those kind of disconfirming experiences um, in order to to do the memory reconsolidation. Um, And if a client is struggling more in their present day with like isolation, disconnection, lack of support, um, that can make things a little bit more, not impossible, but can add kind of some layers of challenge as well. Exactly. And that's why I think it is a very um, collaborative experience with Mm -hmm. the client because they might not be ready to do something because of those factors. Right. 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 But it doesn't mean we can't do some work in the, like during that, mm-hmm. it just might not be like they want to be doing X, Y, or Z. 
Yeah. So yeah, yeah psychosocial and biofactors are always important to consider. Yeah. Okay. Last question, just because you mentioned it um, and I want to make sure everyone knows what it is. Can you describe structural dissociation? Um, yeah. Structural dissociation is a kind of a dissociative theory. Um, and it looks at like two action systems, um, the action system of defense. So that fight, flight, freeze that we use in trauma, and then, um, the action system of moving, of daily life. So going mm. to school, doing caregiving work, um, all of these two, when we aren't experiencing trauma often work really well together. Mm. Um, they're more succinct and cohesive and information is kind of being passed from, you know, more um, integrated information is being passed from these systems. Yeah. Yeah. So structural dissociation is something that everyone with complex trauma experiences or only some people with complex trauma. I would say if you have complex trauma, there's some structural dissociation happening mm -hmm. somewhere. Because complex trauma, um, ongoing trauma often, often makes it so that we have to separate from the ongoing trauma information that yeah. can be integrated and continuing on with like daily life. Right, right. Yeah, because the trauma, you know, being so chronic and recurring um, in, in complex childhood trauma like life doesn't stop. And while you're dealing with maybe all of this chaotic and traumatic shit happening at home, you also have to like go to school or, you know, go to work or go, you know, be able to function socially. Um, and so it's that kind of like compartmentalization, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like it's adaptive. We have to continue on. So if I'm chronically in, if I'm in chronic stress, you know, that will make it so that it's really hard for me to continue to try and integrate that traumatic information, that yeah. stress information. And so we have parts that start to, um, we call them EPs, emotional parts that start to um, take on that information that is disconnected or dissociated from the part of me that can, needs to continue on with daily life. Mm -hmm. um, we're trying not to have so many intrusions Right. Upon the daily life movement. Right. Activities. Right. Yeah. Makes so much sense. Awesome. Well, those are all of my um, interview questions. Thank you so much again for, for sharing your time today. Um, are you accepting clients? I'm not. I, I have a wait list. Okay. I just yeah. always ask because I know people hear these episodes and are like, can I work with her? Um, but you do have a lot of amazing online resources and I'm going to be linking your social media and website um, in the podcast description. So I've seen that you have like, I think different classes and um, kind of training resources for like therapists. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's working with attachment defense with clients. There's a core belief cards. So there's a few things that are like um, therapist resourcing and then there are um, more like just individual resources as well like the inner child master class and oh, cool. core belief cards to people by that aren't therapists because yeah. it's helpful that way too yeah yeah awesome okay well thank you so much Kendall yeah, it was so good talking time. to you